All right, guys, good morning. This is a test of my new recording device, my trucker headset. 10-4, buddy. What's your 20? This is Trucker 1-9 with my trucker headset. It's an over-the-ear microphone, Bluetooth. Got it going. Got it from Amazon. Thank you, China. Straight out of uh, Wuhan. Made possible by a global supply chain. So... I don't know if you can hear these birds. It's a beautiful morning. It's about five something. Going for my morning walk. Just listening to to the Philosophize This podcast. Which is a pretty awesome podcast. He was going over uh, Hegel's um, existence of God. So I'll give you just a quick recap. He was saying that um, God can't be an entity because it is infinite. It can't be just one thing. Um, and that we're just projecting our biases onto it. So, obviously that's not a very good explanation. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And I've been posting some of these episodes uh, in our Telegram group, Stream of Random. We've been discussing whether or not Telegram is a sustainable sustainable thing. I really question it. I wonder what type of internet bill they get every month. Just, they have 400 million people. How much bandwidth that's... um, actually uh, producing. It's going to be a lot. A lot of bandwidth. (sighs) And uh, how many servers they're actually going to need, independent of the software. I mean, they must have a very high operational cost. (sighs) So... What are we talking about today? Why did I want to record this? What do we... What does our stream of random say? Well... I'm totally blank. We got the uh, Trenton Mental Hospital here, which is famous from the Buckaroo Banzai movie, which is a great New Jersey uh, tribute movie. And they uh, go through uh, Route 1, they go to Trenton, they go to uh, New Brunswick, I guess they go to uh, Princeton, I'm not sure. Um, The White Castle, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, definitely goes down uh, Route 1 or 295 or whatever, comes down to Princeton as well. There's some really great um, New Jersey movies out there. Um, New Jersey uh, is still on lockdown. We still have masks um, needed. And um, I went to Wawa the other day to uh, 
I don't know what I was going to get. Just walking. And I go in there, and they said, well, listen, sir, you need to have a mask on. I said, well, can you sell me a mask? She said, no, I can't sell you a mask. I said, okay, but you'll sell me Doritos, and you'll sell me, um, you know, bananas, but you can't sell me a mask. Like, what's the point with that? Look at that deer. There's so many deer here. Looks like lunch to me. They're getting pretty fat on people's gardens, let me tell you. Yeah, the Trenton Mental Hospital has this huge cage, um, like this jail, where they have criminally insane people. Someone escaped from there uh, just the other week. Can you believe it? It's like, lock your doors, kids. You got insane psychopaths running out of the, the psycho ward. But you'd hope that they'd be smart enough to run away and not... Uh, not try and, um, you know, sneak into your house that's right next to the hospital. They probably are insane, but still smart enough to try and get away. So, there's some redeeming, uh, something redeeming about that. But they have beautiful old buildings. The old mental ward buildings, but they're all full of asbestos, so you can't even uh, you can't even go in there. They're just uh, collapsing onto themselves, and uh, it's right next to the uh, Trenton uh, Country Club. And uh, there's houses that have a view of the Country Club and of the uh, mental hospital. You got the canal there. It's really beautiful. Really, really beautiful. <clears throat> yeah, my brain is frozen, guys. I don't know what to say. I guess I'm not awake yet. Well, Kant was saying that we can't know anything about the universe. We only have our limited perspective, our interpretation machines that are interpreting a narrow bandwidth of phenomena, uh, electromagnetic impulses called light, sound waves, etc., etc., and that all of our knowledge is based around the human artifacts, mental artifacts, or the internal world. So we have our internal world. It's kind of like the uh, Plato's cave, where we're chained up and we don't see the real world, we just see the shadows in the wall. The shadows on the wall are the, uh, not the reality. It's just our own little internal world. We're just chained up in our brains, looking at the wall, which are the neurons from the outside that's projecting onto it through our eyes. 
little slits, little peepholes, tiny little holes where the light comes in, shines onto these neurons that pick it up. That's the cave wall. Think about that. And then we come up with all these terms and ideas and theories about what we see. And then we make computer programs that don't represent reality. They represent what we actually have. They don't represent reality. They represent our understanding, our internal world. So we have programs that have data structures, and this is where I'm getting out with the introspector, so let's get into there. The introspector idea is that programmers represent concepts of the real world or of the internal world. They express those in source code. And that those are pretty close to uh, the world. They aren't the world, but they're close to it. There are data samples from outside, mouse events, mouse clicks from users, sound files from the outside world, you know, video streams, live streams, these audio files, all that information from the outside given context. You know, where was it recorded? When was it recorded? Timestamps, locations, geocodes, all that information, all that context. And um, that context, that information about uh, where and when and what gives you some information about uh, the instance where that program is running and what computer it's running. So we got this whole layer, execution layer, operational layer, operational security, where things are running what phone is the program running, or what device, what IoT device. And, um, these are things that we're going to want to model, and uh, we'll be collecting information. So, Let's say you have a Linux kernel, and you have the perf tool, which allows you to sample all different parts of the program, of the uh, operation. Um, so basically, you can sample any memory address at any time, quickly. Um, which basically means you can stop. Look at that deer. 
It's just in someone's yard. Just looking at me. Thinks I didn't see it. I'll leave it alone. Running away. Those deer. Um. So. You can sell some more deer. This is amazing. Um, so you can sample the address of memory on the computer that you control anytime you want, anywhere you want. Using these perk tools from Brandon. Basically, you interrupt. You know, you insert a breakpoint. You stop the computer at a certain time. You sample a register, and then you copy that register value someplace. I guess you record a timestamp. Let's say that's your, like your basic measurement. Right? You're sampling one memory address. Now bear with me, because this memory address could be very important. It could be exactly what you want to know. Just think about it in the brain. Like you could be sampling the pixel color of a neuron. Like you could just sample one neuron. The state of one neuron. Or state of one synapse firing or not firing, right? Or how much ATP is left in this neuron? Did it fire recently? Did it not fire recently? I'm sure there's all types of um, variables. That might be interesting on the hardware level of the brain. But I don't know enough about it. But we do know about the computer. The computer is much easier to understand. The computer is just layers and layers of human knowledge or human software encoded into hardware that's just compiled, encoded into these chips reprogram them to do whatever you want them to do. Little workers. And a lot of them are doing knowledge work. Rep manipulation of internal internal what we know about the world what we've measured internal things. Don't really know about the outside world, but there's some clues and some glimpses as to what the outside world, what might have been measured, or what might have been what state it might have been, depending on your measurements. But that's kind of what Kant was getting at. Like the computer doesn't know where it's executing. 
it might have some sensors that will tell it its geolocation. You know, it might have some kind of GPS device on your Android or iPhone or Raspberry Pi or whatever. On your CPU attached something that will give you a signal. You've got like different sensors, input devices. But the computer doesn't know if those are real. It's hard to verify if that GPS signals were spoofed. For all it knows, it could be hooked up in a lab. It doesn't know. It doesn't know its context. Same thing with the human. At least, in general. We're just dealing with what we have. We don't know if we're in the matrix. We don't know if we're in a tank in a cell, dreaming up the world or having it ejected. Okay. So, <clears throat> okay, so there's something I'm going to skip over here. I mean, basically what I wanted to mention was you know, going to the end of the simulation in the uh, 13th floor, the guy keeps on going and going to the end of the world, he gets to the end of the simulation, and he sees that it's just a simulation. Um, you know, pushing to the edge, pushing to the limit, uh, focusing on something, pushing down on it, uh, following it to the end. That's kind of what we're good at. That's what the computer can do, calculate uh, programs, mathematical formulas. You know, you can grab onto some variables, put them in registers, do some basic calculations on them, fundamental comparison operators, addition, subtraction, that's what it all boils down to. Everything's encoded as numbers, as bytes. It's hard to, uh, and again, those can be represented, so listening to the auto ML, those bytes and those basic operations can be represented as matrices and they can be um, done by neural networks. You could train a neural network to do all these basic operations and you could basically turn everything into some kind of matrix multiplication. Even the code, I suppose, could be encoded into some kind of matrix so it's like special kind of matrix transformation where the program itself is just data you know, apply this transformation that's stored in the matrix which is the program to this input data which is stored in the matrix and just multiply them against each other or whatever some basic operation hey that's your program imagine that imagine if it's that simple that all these programs could be 
reduced to that, and that the neurons are just doing that kind of thing. The neurons in the brain are just doing matrix multiplication kind of situation. It's like, okay, here's what you need to do, that's a matrix. Here's your input, that's a matrix. What's the output? Oh, it's another matrix. A vector. A list of numbers. A set of neurons. Fired or not fired. Or pulses. And maybe um, it's just streams of pulses. Maybe we're not looking at whether an individual neuron is actually on or off, but we're talking about like a stream of pulses coming in. A stream of pulses coming out. In the matrix, the operation might be a stream of pulses coming in, or maybe that's a state that's encoded in the matrix of neurons where the configuration of the neurons are actually uh, stable, trained, the model. Anyway, so maybe we've gotten some kind of idea of how the brain might work. If we look at the computer world, they try and say, oh, well, what if the, computer, the brain is like the computer somehow? But what I've been thinking about a lot is, and I've been trying to get to ontology and Kant and trying to understand, like, how do we understand these models of the world? that are given to us by programs. Like each program, and you know, the compiler takes human language type situations, it does transformations on them, it compiles them down to computer language. But what can we know about the human representations, about the human mind, um, as represented in programs? Like, what does that tell us about the world? Or, what does that tell us? So, now, let's take the Kant approach. What does that tell us about the human mind? Like, what does the Linux operating system tell us about the mind itself? Or the architecture of the computer? What does that tell us about the mind? Well, we looked at one part, like basic operations being represented as matrices. Well, maybe that is something that we learned from the mind or gleaned from it. So there's some insight. But if there's more insight, we have functions, we have parameters, we've got return types. In OWL, uh, semantic web ontology language, the Ontology web language, OWL. You've got uh, properties that have uh, a domain where they come from and a range where they go to, like a function. And these classes of objects have domains, have properties. And uh, that's like the basic modeling. You've got classes which are subsets or supersets. You could say that this excludes that. This set excludes that set. They're disjoint or joint or unions of each other. You've got like basic like set manipulation. 
relationships. So those kind of map onto uh, you know how we model or how I model uh, things, or we learn to model that way. Some axioms of modeling. Yeah, and what are these things that we're modeling? You know, they could be like classes of things, sets of things, objects. What of these are what Kant was talking about as basic, fundamental human uh, faculties? Let me check my recording, make sure it's all recording. Nicely. Yeah, it says we're recording 24 minutes of that. So what if these are the, we're not learning about reality, we're the human mind. Like, all right, I don't know where we left off. I think uh, I lost a bunch of my recording. Said the mic was muted. So I'll just continue where I left off. Um, and what the hell. I'll, re I'll back up a little bit. So what I was talking about was the idea of I was talking about the idea of context. So we have a um, trace of an execution or executing a program or simulating the execution of a program. We have the source code. We have the data in memory. We know where this data came from. For each byte, we know, you know how it got there, right? Flow of data into it. For every piece of the code, we know the source code. We know the commit. We know the project. We know the intent of the person or the stated intent of them. Let's say we have some kind of understanding of the uh, language of the human, like the English language or whatever language it is, telling us um, what was their intent. Good morning. Hey, puppy. Hey, how you doing, puppy? I got three dogs of my own. Oh, that's okay. I like doggies. He's a good doggie. See ya. So we have a, um, let's just say we have a full graph of our current context. Okay. And, um, and this is where I was kind of getting into, like, well, what do we know from the human language? What's the intent of the programmer? What's the commander's intent? Like, what are they trying to accomplish? Right? What's the purpose of this program? And 
you know, can we model that? Can we model the uh, language? Can we apply some kind of semantic understanding to it? You know, if we were to translate it between languages, you know, what are the entities? What is actually, what are we actually talking about? How much of it is meta-language, like there, the, uh, all that stuff, and how much of it's actually talking about something in the world, the domain of the program, the domain of its execution. And how can we connect all of that together, up the chain and down the chain, high level to low level, and reach some understanding of what's going on in this program? We could say, hey, this variable here is this property that's being measured from this sensor that's coming from this entity that's of that class that's mentioned in this document and this specification, and that's the intended thing. And we're calculating this derived property of that. Okay, so that's what I'm kind of getting at. That would be like an understanding. I think machine learning could do that eventually. It could like describe what's going on in the program, an introspection function, a self-inspection. Okay. Some kind of debugger some oracle so uh, let's continue so we have this program that's running and we're looking at like an if statement is it going to go left is it going to go right right you've got a simple if and um But how did you get there? What's the context? The context might be like, oh, you came from another if. You might have a whole chain of ifs. You might have like a binary tree. So you might be in the middle of a binary tree. Like that would be the classification. You could just say, hey, we're doing a binary tree search. And we're in this algorithm here. This is a recursive function over there. And that's what the program is doing. Could be something much more complicated. It could be like a fractal function or some kind of random map, some type of chaos function where it takes the output and plugs that back in the input and keeps on iterating it over and over and over again. You know, some kind of mathematical function. So we don't know, but I think that we can, I think that we can connect. Maybe we cannot like determine from nothing, but we can definitely make something that will connect the pieces if they're available. Just piece them together. And it might just be a question of data processing 
and large amounts of data being connected and efficiently processing that large amounts of data. And at what point do we actually lose track At what point do we explode? So, in the end, um, if you just name your functions correctly, they could contain all the context. And uh, let's just say you could add in a trace number into your program some record that would give it a unique number and just say, okay, this is where this data came from. And every time the data changed, you would recalculate that. It'd be like a blockchain. So let's say we'd have some kind of blockchain for the data in the program. Like these are our variables. These are our packets of data, our data records, our data structures. And um, every time they're modified or updated, we create an audit record. And uh, give them an updated number. That keeps like a version count on them. And a checksum. So we throw in some overhead, some memory allocation overhead. This is kind of what compilers do, you know, like stash smacking, smashing, and stack protection, and execution protection. There's all types of stuff you can do to protect your programs. Boy, someone left their car running. But the key's not in the ignition, so that's good. I guess they got a smart car with a remote start. Good for them. Let me check the status of my recording. Yeah, we're recording. So, uh, where are we at now? So, if you name everything correctly and you push down this code, this knowledge, into your structures, then you can give everything nice names. Like this is the cosine this function, and this is that and that function. So you could embed all types of information into your code and make it more explicit, easy to debug, straightforward. But once you get into some kind of um, dynamic type situation, where you've got code that's dealing with other people's code, like a compiler, um, becomes more difficult.
and you're trying to create representations of those things of the code and you're trying to represent those uh, other people's programs and that's kind of what I'm, I've been thinking about a lot like what are the representations of representations what are the commonalities what are the things that people do to process other people's programs What are the common tree structures or craft structures? And a lot, I've looked at a lot of different compilers, and they all have their abstract, abstract syntax trees, and they're all a little bit different. But can we tag them? So given that input before, oh my god. Given that input that covers the entire program, well, what if you have an input that covers the compiler? And then you feed that coverage, input coverage of the same language to another compiler. And you have those two different traces. Well, couldn't you compare those two traces to each other and link them based on the input and say, oh, well, this input over here is the same. And now this compiler reacts this way and this compiler reacts this way. This compiler uses this tree structure to represent that field. And then, of course, you would tag all the fields in the input. So it wouldn't be just, you know, this test case. Well, and this test case, which is different than that test case for this one field. So each test case would manipulate a different field. And you could say this test case is the same as that test case, except that it modifies this field. And then you could trace through the different programs and say, oh, wow, well, look. That's the difference right there. So I'm going to fast forward here to some more of my ideas. Let's say we could um, train or generate those test inputs based upon just running programs. So every time that a certain execution in the code is reached, you would record a test case. So you would um, collect the context of information and um, all the inputs that led to reaching a point. Let's call that the context of that point. So all the decisions made, all the data that was read, um, the blockchain, so like the variables that were created, the derived variables, And then we have to get into discarding because obviously if the program is running for a long time um, and you're tracking all these variables, eventually they're going to have to be discarded because you don't need them. So we only care about what's being referenced. We need to do garbage collecting. Okay. 
So we have a garbage collecting blockchain type system that sweeps out old transactions into a long-term storage in case they're needed. Um, you know, and the thing is, is that the compiler is going to produce massive, massive amounts of data. Like these traces are going to be absolutely humongous. The amount of memory consumed is just ginormous if you were to actually serialize it all. But maybe we don't need to. Maybe we just need some key, key things. Maybe we don't need a copy of all the data. Maybe the data is coming from a source. So instead of having a copy of the data, we would just say, hey, this came from this point in the file. Like I have this file position or this point in the input stream and this point in the input stream um, is all I need to know because that contains the variables, that contains the, uh, the names and the strings and I can derive maybe um, source record along with a point of decisions. So there's something that needs more thought, like how much data do we actually need, especially if the data is not being mutated. Or if it's being mutated. If it's being corrupted, if there's like some kind of bug where the memory is being overwritten. Well, that's where the blockchain type situation comes in. I need to think this through. It's not a fully thought out thing. I think it's worth exploring, though. Um, my previous attempts have been naive of just writing everything to like a graph database. But then once you write everything to the graph database, Once you run everything to the graph database, okay, well, let's go through this real quick. It, it's very huge, and then you need the graph. The graph is represented by the structure of the program, so you, you're kind of caught up into uh, and reproducing the structure of the program that represents the structure of the graph. Like that decodes the structure of the graph, okay? Um, and then again, the structure of the input program is another key to that structure of the graph. So you've got the input program and you've got the actual code itself. And those two things are, are keys to decoding the graph uh, of the memory, with the nodes and the, and the ASTs. Um, so let's continue. Where the annotation of uh, input. So let's say I have an input file, and I would make an annotated input file that would describe the state of the computer for each byte of the input file. Okay, so I've got a ticker tape that it's saying 
Oh, here's my input stream, and for every byte in the input stream, I would output another byte or two or more describing the internal state of the compiler at um, while uh, processing that input. Ideally, it would be a single number. It would give you some kind of um, it would give you some kind of um, you know a pointer or a node in the blockchain like we wouldn't have to have a full the full information because we can reduce it I think that might be key good morning so uh, I was thinking we would basically take, and I think a machine learning could also be used to uh, to help classify that into numbers or vectors. Okay, let's say we have word to vect. We have some kind of vector, and uh, we basically would convert. We would convert uh, the state of the um, state of the input to a uh, vector. So for every byte of the input file, we'd have a vector that describes it, like a word to vector. And the same thing with output files. We have another vector for the output. So for every byte of your output file, you could write out another. A vector. So we're talking about an expansion here. So if you've got a million, if you've got a million bytes in your input file, you know you could have ten million bytes, ten times. You have a vector of ten. You have ten times more um, data describing the state. The internal state of the program during that input. Okay, that's acceptable. Ten time expansion. And if I've got a million bytes in memory, you know, maybe I need ten times as much memory to describe the state of the computer at that point in memory, maybe. But if I look at the execution, of a uh, program, we've got millions and millions and millions and millions of instructions executed, and you want to have one byte or ten bytes for each instruction that's actually executed, or more. We're talking about humongous amounts of data. Ginormous amounts of data. So that's going to give us something to think about. Okay, guys. There's a lot more I could talk about. I'm sure no one's going to want to follow this. This is something that maybe it's just good for me to uh, just refresh and go over.
Maybe my diehard fans will uh, want to listen to it. I doubt it. Anyway, peace out. Greetings from Trenton. Bye. Alright guys, so I just listened to the end of the first tape, and it looks like we have a huge break um, before I crossed the road. <clears throat> so I'll try and catch up on, uh, I'll try and catch up on some of that. So we were talking about, um, we're trying to make the transition from uh, you know Kant and objects and basically here's what here's the basic idea okay Kant said that we're not actually looking at the world we're looking at our mind and how it processes things like the prime mover and causality and all of that, those are mental faculties that we're born with. So I'm going to make the assertion that object modeling properties, the type of stuff that you'll see in um, the object, the ontology for web language, like classes, objects, properties, types, those are like basic faculties of the brain, not of reality, but of the human mind's attempt to model reality. And that we're going to have different incarnations of things like that or similar to that in different programming languages, with different flavors. Each one is going to take a stab at, um, sorry, I'm just crossing the bridge here. Each one of those is going to take a stab at, you know, representing the world or allowing people to do those basic fundamental um, constructs. structures, data structures, or constructed reality. And we're going to get into all types of uh, questions of how to transform from one structure to another structure, because all of these structures are similar but different. And um, you know what is the uh, what is the base? What is it actually representing? What's the base reality? <clears throat> so
I'm thinking, uh, maybe, I mean, I've always thought, in my whole life, I've always thought there is some base reality that's being represented. But Kant tells us these are just constructs of the mind. And other people tell us they're just biases. So maybe there is no true structure of the mind. Maybe these are just biases that we've learned and that we've somehow used to analyze tools that we've used to analyze the world. Um, attempts at slicing it up, but none of them really do the job. It's possible. Got all these different programming languages. You've got the same concepts implemented in different ways. So that's where we get into like standards and traceability of those standards. Translators between languages. And uh, yeah, maybe um, maybe we can um, translate between computer languages. And this is kind of what I was getting at, where um, I am taking a tangent here. I'm just going to skip over some of the stuff we talked about that got lost. But basically, I went over and I said, um, we've got the uh, structures of programs and I was working up to the idea of um, being able to stop the program at any time to uh, maybe we would get into the point of um, fuzzing or a deep knowledge about the um, a deep knowledge about context of execution traceability Um, basic uh, operations being matrix. I think that was before that got recorded. But um, maybe we can do machine learning uh, to learn, you know, uh, different representations of the same program. I talked about that feeding the same inputs to different versions of, the, versions of a compiler. Now that we talk about doing the um, different um, for different languages it's kind of difficult but you've got like the same thing that's implemented in different languages like the Rosetta Stone let's say where they do comparisons between programming languages. Okay, so let's say we have the Rosetta Stone. And uh, for each uh, base byte of input, we would get a vector that describes the um, state of the compiler or processing language for that particular byte. Luckily, those Rosetta programs are very small, normally. So maybe we don't need 10 bytes 
we could have a lot more bytes of information. This is of the source code, not of the executable. So that's another good thing. So word defect uses like a million size or 10,000. I use these huge vectors for training. But maybe we can have a large vector, let's say 100,000 bytes of vectors to represent each byte of the input programming language. And um, that would be for one language. So if we have two different languages, um, okay, now this is where it's going to get interesting. We have two different languages. Implementing the same concept. So we would have the specification as one input, and for each word of the specification, each byte of the specification, we would have a vector. For each word in the language of the specification, we would have a vector. So this is where we're getting into the words of the language. And then we would have the different implementations of that language, of that spec. We have multiple implementations. And um, for each word of the language used, we would have a vector. And somehow we would map the specification vector onto the language vector. So we would have a matrix that would be mapping the words in the source language to the words in the implementation language. And saying how they relate to each other. So you'd have a pair or a matrix, a pair of source, source uh, bytes or source words mapped onto implementation words. And hopefully we would have some kind of way to then show that two implementations can be made equivalent to each other going back through the source language. So we would go from the source language to the actual execution or other intermediate forms, traceability,
Now, worst case scenario, we would have a large input file and we'd have a large output file and we'd have to map every byte onto every byte. So you could get into humongous problems. Um, where every single in byte of the input would have to be mapped onto every single byte of the output in a huge matrix. That would be ginormous. And I'm hoping we don't have to do that, see? This is where um, this is where I'm thinking uh, we could reduce. So we would map the input byte onto an, uh, onto an intermediate representation, map the output byte or the implementation byte onto an intermediate representation, which would be a smaller set of numbers. And then we have a smaller matrix. That would be this concept is implemented to this piece of code. And then we could also say for the two languages that bird. Bright yellow bird. I think that's the New Jersey State bird. So, what we're talking about here now is um, sizes of complexity. Size of models. Um, So then, yeah, we want to be able to uh, to show that the that this concept, in this programming language, is the same as this concept in that programming language. They they both map onto an execution that's exactly the same. You know, a plus b equals c, and uh, we can show they converge. So the execution would be the same. So the representation of the execution would be the same. So every step in the execution could be mapped onto a byte. Let's just say, let's just say that, um, let's go back to this question of how big the execution is. So every step of the execution has a different context. Part of that context is the instruction pointer. And uh, there's only a finite set of instruction pointers that are going to be used. So let's break that down, that for every instruction pointer um, that's executed, With the caveat that those instruction pointers might be executing on data segments, it could be generated just in time. So we're going to say every unique instruction, as opposed to an instruction pointer address, which might change, 
in theory, it's possible. So every unique instruction or every unique set of code uh, that's executed will give that a number. And that will be a smaller finite set. And um, we want to categorize those. And then um, show that this specification led to this implementation, and this implementation led to this execution or this instruction and this instruction is the same as other instructions and other programs that do the exact same thing. Or they could be different. They could be leading to different results, but we could show maybe that the result was the same. So maybe we can map out the results. So re different registers and uh, let's say we have different registers that we're classifying and sampling um, different attributes of the machine and um, those are part of the sample vector so if we have 128 registers you know we've got a stack call stack you got the heap. You've got different things that are relevant to you. And let's just say that we could reduce those somehow with knowledge of the program so that we don't need the full stack and we don't need the full heap. So for every instruction we could reduce it down to a set of samples in our vector. The training program would determine those vectors, values, as a uh, transformation to select. So it would be like, select this register, or select this part of the stack. Or select this part of the heap, or dereference this value. So we would come up with a set of mess of measurement points to be implemented using, let's say, perf or dynamically injected. Say when we reach this point of execution, we want to make these samples. Sounds pretty damn good, guys. I like that. I like it. Let me make sure I got this on tape. We are recording. I'm not going to touch it. So, so basically what we're saying is that, um, given a program and given a specification and uh, I would even say um, we could reduce it down to a test case 
So the input has been sampled from production. We've got a reproducible inputs. You know, we're going to say uh, mirror the network, extract packets from production, reproduce that execution. Uh, in the closed environment, be able to iterate over it a couple of times. Let's say we are allowed to iterate over the input so many times after capturing it for training purposes. And we'll come up with a uh, set of sample points of key samples to inject into production to sample at real time. And we could automate this with some kind of learning algorithm. Which is basically going to say the output will be a set of addresses, breakpoints, and then code to execute, which are data points that could be injected into the actual program. So you could just augment your uh, code and then um, put some conditionals. Say only execute this under these conditions. Be able to turn it on and off at runtime. When needed, you might even want to dynamically say, oh, well, if this condition is met, set this variable, and that variable will turn that monitoring on. And if this condition is no longer met, then unset that variable, turn that monitoring off. So we could have a dynamic sampling of key variables with high amounts of meaning and visualize them and then get back into our basic faculties of human intelligence that uses object recognition and pattern recognition and visual cortex So yeah, introspection is um, exploiting our basic faculties of understanding, object recognition, pattern recognition, visual, um, visual, uh, and other mental faculties of the human and augmenting that with computer aid and data collection from runtime systems using deep knowledge of your problem. Intercepting uh, 
packets of data, exfiltrating them, and assuming we're going to have to implement some kind of basic debugging protocols. I mean, what we have that is called perf. And you can log into the machine and uh, type in a perf rule and have it collect data. Store it in memory, write it to disk in an efficient manner. It's all there. So thank you, Brendan. Yeah, I'm feeling quite good about this, guys. Uh, I think um, I've finally gotten the mental tools, thanks to Kant, and thanks to Philosophize This, and thanks to Alex for teaching me about machine learning. So given machine learning and mathematics and some basic understandings of how that worked, uh, and some more philosophy, and also thanks to uh, Jocko for, and Andy Frazella and Joe Rogan for teaching me not to be such a lazy bastard. Adding all that together, so mixing it up, I think uh, I'm on track again with my interest factor. Maybe I have something useful that hasn't been done before. All right, guys, I'm going to share this um, on the uh, podcast. See you later. Okay, well, I'm going to throw in an addendum. I'm going to throw in a little bit since I still have a little bit of a walk to go. Um, Basically... What I'm thinking is I could uh, record, transcribe this voice and um, mark it up and say, this is my input to my program. This voice uh, recording is the specification, is the input maybe, or at least it's a description it's an idea. It's got some words in it. It's got some ideas in it. Obviously, it's not perfect. It needs to be refined and reworked. But, um, yeah, I think I'm going to transcribe it and then edit it, edit that and turn it into some kind of document that is you know, usable and um, at least come some kind of specification of what I want. And then uh, write some programs based around that. Um, yeah, I like the idea of classifying the different uh, classifying the different uh, attributes of the um, machine, the different registers and all that. And uh, depending on your instruction pointer, of course, different registers are of value. But you know what? We can train that. Uh, based on the um, the compiler rules, they'll tell you all types of uh, information about what instructions are related to what registers. Um, so you don't even have to uh, look at millions of programs for that. The compiler has a wealth of knowledge that we can use as training material 
And there's all types of uh, programs like virtual machines, just-in-time compilers, you know, everyone's got like, like the machine descriptions, like the compiler has a machine description, the Linux operating system has machine descriptions, um, just-in-time compilers have machine descriptions. Instruction set descriptions. I mean, even that would be a great topic for uh, machine learning to try and um, to try and decode a machine description, and then um, maybe generate instructions and observe how they are executed by a machine or by a VM. You know, we could just say, hey, execute these instructions, execute this program, generate this, this program and execute the program and observe how it's executing it. And that's where the virtual machine comes in, where we can do a deeper inspection of... Got virtual machines, you've got emulators. You can look how the emulator is actually running it. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting applications for machine learning or introspection to uh, compilers. Um, I just wanted to throw that in. All right, guys, stay tuned. See you later.